Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. We'll be looking at what is basically a culmination of this section of the book. Drawing to a close this idea of these kind of uh, cycles of judgment and redemption with this final chapter that talks about the redemption of the people of God. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we need help with it because we continually turn to the scriptures to find stories about ourselves and how good we are. But instead, what is there is stories about you and how good you are. And so, Lord, please show us yourself from this text this morning that we might be convicted of our sin and that we might be drawn closer to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I read through this text. It made me think of something that happened in our nation's history in 1988. 36% of Yellowstone National Park was burned to the ground. I know that doesn't seem significant, but it was pretty significant for me, even though I was only 10 at the time. took a big interest in a lot of the animals and things that were going on. One thing that that people may not remember about that summer is that it was the worst drought since the Dust Bowl. It was one of the most expensive disasters in our nation's history, and it was a disaster that was going on all summer long, and it was a drought. We don't really remember. I grew up right on the Mississippi River. There were places where you could have waded across the river that summer. It was pretty incredible. That drought combined with poor fire management policies. Remember Smokey the Bear and his message to us? That wasn't the best of ideas. Uh, this led to this great fire. The only thing that finally brought it to an end was the coolness of the fall and rain that followed. While the media reported that the park wouldn't recover, because you know the media and its sensationalism, it was still sensational back then even, all the animals were killed, they said, and that wasn't the case either. turns out that things were okay. In fact, just weeks after the fire, the places that were completely routed and were black after the fire were now blanketed with wildflowers all over the place. And the animals that were supposedly all killed by the fire were eating peacefully as if nothing had ever happened. Several species of tree that had been on the brink of extinction before the fire actually rebounded and are thriving today because of it. The fire brought a lot of death. There's no question about that. It also brought life with it. Returned nutrients to the soil. The forest has recovered. In our text today, we read about a similar kind of thing that is happening to the nation of Israel. The forest fire that swept through Israel wasn't a fire at all, but it was the Assyrian Empire that swept through Israel, both north and south, left behind a devastation that wherever it went, killing and capturing the leaders of the country, destroying homes and farms, bringing with them all of their false idols that would remain in Israel for years, Israel would recover, though, and one day they would thrive like never before. We still look forward to that day. That day, again, hasn't been recorded because this day 
It's what our text points to. The day that the Messiah returns. Israel had several smaller Messiahs. Called, you know, the word Messiah just simply means anointed one in its history. The, the kings that had gone through the different kinds of kings. But there's only one true Messiah. He wouldn't come till much later in their history. And he will come again to renew his creation and the people of his inheritance. That day is what Old Testament and New Testament believers alike have always looked forward to. And we continue to look forward to. As we consider this text, I want us to look at two main ideas from it. The ideal peace and the particular peace. And so with that, let's look at the text. Isaiah chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Please stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 11, starting at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his eyes hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be at the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. He shall raise a signal for the nations and assemble the, ba- the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into the seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt." Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So a little bit of background. 
The illustration of the forest fire works really well because of what we read last week at the end of chapter 10. So just look back at the previous two verses, or the last two verses of chapter 10. Remember some of the imagery that was there. It says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Remember the picture last year of the Lord wielding the axe and leveling the forest of the oppressors. The Assyrians were that forest. The Lord took them down to the ground. Before that, the Assyrians were actually the axe. They were the tool that the Lord was using to take care of Israel and Judah and to level them to the ground. And so there is this leveled forest before us, the Lord God having taken care of all of it, seemingly no life therein. That is why chapter 11, verse 1, is so vibrant here. Picture this forest that has been chopped down. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You get the picture of this forest where nothing is standing, and then all of a sudden there's this tiny little shoot that is growing out of one of the dead stumps. This isn't a new idea for Israel, the idea that the remnant has been mentioned several times as we've gone through this book. But here you get this very vivid picture to help us understand what is actually going on. And that brings me to the first point, the ideal peace. Look there at verses 1 through 3. I just read verse 1, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him who is him, the shoot that is from the stump of Jesse. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. While you could make several connections to several people in Israel's history that would fit in this mold imperfectly, the Lord Jesus fits here perfectly. He comes from the stump of Jesse. Remember, who is Jesse? Well, Jesse is the father of David. Jesse was Ruth's grandson. If you want to go back even further, and we can continue to go back until you get to Abram all of God's people. Jesse had several sons. If you remember from 1 Samuel, all the sons were paraded in front of Samuel the prophet, but it was the youngest that was chosen to be king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we quoted several weeks ago, that king, David, was told that there would be one on his throne forever, that his throne was established for all eternity, and it's going to be established through him. Well, here we have a picture of that. Just when we thought, well, that whole dynasty thing was just a joke. No, there is one who is coming from the stump of Jesse. This shoot emerges from the stump and brings with him fruit. And what is the purpose of that fruit? It's going to replenish the entire forest. It's from that shoot that the rest of the forest of God's people will have fruit 
life. This is confirmed on every single page of the New Testament with the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ and then the teachings of His apostles. The Spirit rested on Jesus while He had His ministry, as we read there from verse 2. And if you want to be sure of that, go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see the gifts of the Spirit in His life. We see wisdom and understanding and counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. And it says in verse 3 that He delighted in the fear of the Lord. The book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Essentially, what we are being told here is that the Messiah feared the Lord perfectly, demonstrated by His sinless life. I think it's helpful for us here because we sometimes have trouble with this concept of what it means to fear the Lord. To obey the Lord is to fear Him. Not the kind of fear that leaves you hiding and afraid. That's not real fear, but the kind of fear that leaves you comfortable and secure, understood. You know that you are safe with him, but you also know what he's capable of, and that's a good thing. Notice how the Messiah judges as well. He judges completely fair, verses 4 and 5, at the end of verse 3 as well. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide disputes by what his eyes or his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. How is he going to judge? Fairly. No standard that we have made will be the way that he measures. Instead, he will use a divine standard. One that he has made. One that he alone has the right to make. And his only weapon in doling out this judgment notice is his word. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and his and the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. His weapon is his word. We see this picture again several times throughout the Bible, particularly I think of Revelation 19. We see Jesus riding in in judgment and a sword is coming from his mouth. A very vivid picture, of course, this is his word coming from his mouth. With his word, he spoke things into existence back in Genesis 1. And with his word, he will judge all people. And then verses 6 through 9. This is where we'll get to this idea of peace. Verses 6 through 9 show us the results of this kind of fairness that the Messiah brings in, this kind of change that he ushers in. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Now just to be sure, wolves don't really lie down with any lambs unless they're dead lambs and they're lying down to eat them. This is a different kind of picture. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Leopards typically carry their prey up into trees and eat them. So this they're actually laying down together. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf all together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Not a typical situation. The cow and the bear eating next to each other grass 
Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw. That's not normal. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Pretty incredible imagery. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is a restoration of the created order. What happened before sin? There was no death. What happened as a result of sin? Death. Lots of it. And so with this restoration, there's no more death. There's no more sin. When creation fell, that created order was taken all out of whack. It wasn't only man killing each other, it was animals killing each other as well. That will be turned on its head when the Messiah returns. Now, this isn't a statement about animals being in heaven. Maybe they will be. We don't really know, but it seems to be the case that they will be. We don't really know. However, we do know what we will be there, and that's complete reconciliation. That's what this picture is trying to show us. All the contentious relationships that we can imagine will be at peace with one another. There will no longer be strife. All enemies will be together, and there will be complete peace. We'll get into those particulars in a bit, but I think it's first for us to uh, good for us to dwell on peace in general for a little bit because it's very easy to talk about, but it's sometimes hard to imagine when when someone says they're at peace or when someone says I hope that you have peace about this. We just kind of throw that word around. Partly because we have so much turmoil in our daily lives in the lives of people around us and as we turn on the news and we see all the different things that are going on it's hard to imagine what peace is and we kind of dream that it's this thing that really doesn't exist even someone who has no real struggles or heartaches has to deal with things like fatigue and hunger just normal life the the human element human relationships difficult people especially the difficult person that we see in the mirror every day And it's easy to see peace again as this nice idea, but it's really an unattainable ideal. It's not real. Something that really doesn't make sense in the grand scheme of things. We don't really understand it. It's hard to imagine a place or a time where all of your worries would cease and that you would be it from complete freedom from the cares of this world. I mean, I'm talking about it. I can't even fathom that. Just like it's hard to imagine a cow and a bear eating grass together. Or a baby playing with a cobra. Just doesn't make sense. Because we don't trust the God that is in control. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, I think, helps us to understand this a little bit. Starting at verse 4, I'll read this little section here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what results from that? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, we just read about how it surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace that passes all understanding. The wolf dwelling with the lamb. It doesn't make sense. But that's what He gives us. This peace that is so incredible that we can't even understand it. And how do we get it? But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We don't have peace because we do not pray. We don't pray because we don't believe God answers prayer. These are just facts. I'll speak for myself anyway. I can tell you that's the truth. That's my problem. I'm a worrier to the extreme. And the reason I do that is because I don't think that God is in control. I somehow think that I have to be. And I see a problem and I think, okay, now I have to fix this. And my whole life is, now I have to fix this. Now I have to fix this. And you know what? What I still haven't realized in 41 years I'm incapable of fixing anything at all. That's when I worry. Isaiah 11 and Philippians 4 don't suggest that praying more and believing God will eliminate the problems that we have in life. That's not the way this works. We're in a sinful world that is full of sin and death. The Lord Jesus is still waiting to come back for his own reasons. And so we are here, but what did he tell us? He is the one that did that. He eliminated sin and death. It is not a problem for me ultimately. One day I'll be with him forever. I won't have sin and I won't have death. And he's doing that even now in my life as he's convincing us more and more that he is able. Heaven is a place that we get to go because of Jesus. We are the fruit of that little shoot or the stump of Jesse. We have life because He gave it to us. But for now, for this kind of peace, prayer is the key for us to understand more and more the kind of peace that God has for us. And we don't pray so that God can somehow listen and receive our advice and change His eternal decree. He's not waiting for us to pray so that He can see how He plans to do things. If you think that, then you haven't paid attention to the first ten chapters of this book. What do we pray for? Because it changes us. We pray because He changes us through that. He gives us the peace that passes all understanding. It changes us because we need to be changed. Let us be a people who strive to know more about this peace that passes all understanding. Brings me to the second point, a particular piece. Verses 10 and 11, back in Isaiah chapter 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. And then he goes on to list where are his people found. And he lists... All of these different nations. 
Consider the ancient context for just a moment. The people whom Isaiah is writing to. Many of Israel and Judah were displaced when Assyria attacked. Of course, the northern kingdom, the the ten tribes of the northern kingdom from this point forward are called the lost tribes because they were literally scattered to the known world. So in the ancient context, what what is happening? Those people are being called home as the people of God. Deliverance is present. Therefore, the people can come home. The bad thing is gone. They can, they can come home to their, their place of worship. It would have been similar, and the text talks about this, to them coming home after the time of Egypt. If you, if you read through the book of Exodus and all of those different plagues that happened and the people wanting to go back to Israel and Pharaoh finally saying, I've had enough, you can go home, and they're, and they're able to go back into the promised land that they were slaves in this distant land, but now they're being able to return home and reclaim what is rightfully theirs because of what God had done for them. That's what we're seeing here again. And notice together, or notice too, that Judah and Ephraim are together again. Verse 13, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. Judah shall not harass Ephraim. They are together as one people of God, no longer split. And their enemies no longer oppress them. In fact, they take on their enemies behind the work of the Lord. And He paves His way, a way for His people to go back to the land and to, and to their worship. You see this played out in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in particular. The people return to their land and they rebuild their temple. Verse 16 really gives us a great picture of this. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of the people. A highway is a place where there's no obstacles. You know, if you think about the highway, there aren't a lot of sharp turns and there aren't a lot of hills and there aren't a lot of anything because all of those things have been eliminated. It's basically a straight shot. That's what's great about highways. There's a straight shot for the people of Israel to come home back to their homeland. So consider that then in our own context. I think that this passage had a very near fulfillment for the people of Israel, but we really see it come to life in our own context because of the work of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we have the the day, what is, is called the day of Pentecost, which now has a particular meaning, but even then had one as well. And the people there were in Israel at the time, people from all over, and many nations of the world were there, and the Holy Spirit chose this day to come down and be among his people. And I want to read the first 13 chap, 13 verses of this chapter real quick. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this was the people of God waiting in the upper room, and the Spirit came down on them. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. All of these people are now hearing the gospel in their own language. And they were amazed, and they were astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own language? And it goes through this list of those nations. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, all of these people are hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. It's pretty incredible that the Lord made a highway for the people of God to come back to Him. This is an undoing of the curse of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? And they were all confused because of their arrogance and they were cast out in the lang- all the different languages there. Here they're all brought together under one banner, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not only for Israel and for Judah, but for the whole world. This peace that we talk about is not just for believers. It's for anyone who can hear the gospel and respond to it. Paul and others had to deal with quite a bit of this in the New Testament. They had to deal with quite a bit of this idea of the Jews holding this on for themselves and not wanting the Gentiles to be a part of this. He talked about this in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me there quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, starting at verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope but without God in the, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, Jesus... You who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in this flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Why were they able to be made one? The Jews and the Gentiles. The reason that this happened is because their faith wasn't about them. It was about someone else entirely who did all the work for them. They were able to unite around Jesus not around the idea that they were a Jew or that they were from Greece or wherever. They were able to unite around Jesus. In Christ, there are no distinctions like this. Paul lists this several times in the New Testament. He says there are no distinctions. 
Man, woman, Jew, Greek, slave, free, all are equal in Christ. And how did he do it? He did it by abolishing the enemies of his people. For Israel, those enemies were, as it listed in in chapter 11 of Isaiah, Egypt and Philistia and Moab and Edom and on and on. For us, it's our ultimate enemies, sin and death. But we could name others, couldn't we? Sickness, depression, stress, materialism. We could just keep going on and on, really, if we'd wanted to. But it isn't like there is an enemy at any point where Jesus is going to say, I can't break that one, I'm sorry. You'll just have to make do. You're just going to have to do it on your own at this point. I can take care of these, but that one, that one's for you to deal with. No, he conquered all of them, every one. Not only that, he has made a highway for us when it comes to our relationship with the Father. And how can we know the Father? When we know what happens to the wicked, what does he say he's going to do? He's going to judge them. He's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to judge the evil. So how can we, those who sin, know the Father? By knowing the Son. How can we be reconciled to the Father? By the work of Jesus Christ. It is not our own work. It is not our own demonstration of good deeds. We don't have to lay out our good deeds so that he can inspect them and say, okay, yep, you're in. If we were to lay out our good deeds, it would be a really small pile and all of them would be worthless. It's not our own work, but it's his work. Just like that forest that was completely destroyed. It has no life. But when the rains come, when those nutrients return to the ground and it causes those seeds to wake up and come alive, that is what happened in us when Christ did a work in us and he made us alive together in him. He has utterly destroyed our enemies and now presents us to the Father as his perfect people and not in our own perfection. It's not our own perfection that's on display. It is his. The highway that we have to God is Jesus Christ. It's his work alone that gets us into the promised land. So in conclusion, let us be a people who continue in prayer because the days are long and the years are short. We must pray so that God can change us and give us peace while we are here. Let us be a people who love one another as well in Christ, who seek out the world that they may come into our fold. The highway is plain. Brothers and sisters, let us show them Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we, as we pray, as we pray to you now, we pray that you would give us more and more of this peace that passes all understanding. We are so weighed down by the cares of this world, and it's largely because we do not trust you. We don't think that you're capable of doing what you've said you're going to do, so we have taken it upon ourselves, and we are really bad at it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would relieve us of this responsibility that we believe that we have, that you would take care of our hearts because they are broken, that you would show us that you are the only source of peace. You've told us to cast our burdens upon you, 
Lord, help us to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.